0: Sunday mornings at uh, 11 o'clock, the ministry for third through fifth graders is uh, called Colonial Corners. If you've got a third through fifth grader and they're not aware of that, they will never want to miss it once they've gone one time. It's an amazing little creative town with a full set and a room, actresses and actors, and their original scripts acting out key truths of God's word. If you have the idea that it might be just fun and games and all fluff and meringue, They've uh, recently finished an original series of vignettes on the attributes of God. Now once a year, Scott Wiley, the pastor who's also the mayor of Colonial Corners, he has an annual Ask the Mayor week. And the kids write out questions and then uh, they go through them. And he sends them to me. I ask uh, him to do that every year because I'm intrigued by what our kids are asking. Here are the questions. Some of them from this last year. Was it possible for Adam and Eve to have not sinned in the Garden of Eden? What does sin have to do with natural disasters, pain, and sickness? Can the Holy Spirit leave you? What happened to people who died before Christ came to earth? Why did God make heaven? Can you see earth from heaven? Will we eat in heaven? Can you see your family on earth if you're in heaven? Will there be computers in heaven? Will we have churches in heaven? Are there mochas in heaven? I don't know about that. Will there be horses in heaven? Well, yes, but there won't be any. Right, you're learning true doctrine so well. Thank you. Do we live in the new heaven or on the new earth. Why is the Bible called the Bible? How do we know the Bible is true? Well, the tribulation happened before the rapture. Does a church have to have a preacher? I want to know who asked that one, by the way. (laughs) When is the rapture? Now, that's just a few of the questions asked by third, fourth, and fifth graders. Aren't you glad Pastor Scott's answering them all for us, huh? How many of you heard those questions and thought, you know, I, I'd like to have an answer myself. We'll get out a pencil. I'll give you Scott's uh, cell phone number right now. Actually, these were intriguing to me. In fact, many of the questions had to do with future events in heaven. Obviously, a lot of these kids are sitting in with us during our, our studies, and, and I thought maybe we'd just go through them very quickly, very, very quickly. Why did God make heaven? To display the glory of his power and his grace to us forever. Can you see earth from heaven? I believe so. In fact, we're given the implication that deceased individuals, like the tribulation martyrs, as we've studied, not only know what's happening on earth, but they remember what happened to them on earth. And they pray, Lord, when will you vindicate the shedding of our blood, which gives some interesting implications about our own memory in heaven. So going to heaven doesn't necessarily erase your memory, but it does give your memory a perfected perspective, much like the maturity of of Joseph who told his conniving brothers, you remember when they finally reconvened, he said to them, you did not send me here, God sent me here. Genesis 48, 5. Later on, of course, he said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Had Joseph forgotten what happened to him? No. But his perspective was ruling over his memory, and he had nothing but joy in the providence of God. Will we eat in heaven? Absolutely. In fact, we're going to learn that fruit trees will bear fruit year-round for our enjoyment we just won't gain weight Isn't that a wonderful thought (laughs) will there be computers in heaven new heaven new earth I wouldn't doubt it at all in the new heaven and the new earth we will not be omnipresent the systems of communication that we're gonna see developed in the millennial kingdom perhaps entering throughout the 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 eternal state are gonna be so absolutely advanced that we probably in fact we cannot imagine them being able to talk with perhaps someone on on the other side of the globe, through vastly superior communication systems, is not beyond the scope of our experience. And it is not beyond the scope of the implications of Scripture. Will we have churches in heaven? Uh, Will we have pastors in heaven? No. And everyone said, Will we have churches in, in heaven. Well, the church will be in heaven. You're the church, right? Not this building. I know what the child was, was, was wondering. We can only imagine that, that uh, we will assemble at different times all around the earth. Our joy will be to glorify God. Perhaps we'll take the Lord's day as a day to give him praise. And we'll talk about seasons. We'll talk about 24-hour cycles. There's a lot of misunderstanding about heaven. We might be somehow connected with everybody else through technology or travel arrangements to give God our praise. We're simply not told how, but, but we do know that glorifying God in song isn't something we're going to stop doing in heaven, uh, praising him, perhaps even uh, uh, reflecting on the truths of his God-breathed word, which David said is settled forever in heaven, will be of great delight, not only individually, but perhaps even corporately. Well, one child asked, evidently they run to Starbucks every once in a while, are there mochas in heaven? Well, I have I have little doubt that, that what we'll be able to eat and drink will utterly amaze us. I'm not sure about mochas. Somebody would have to grow the beans and and cultivate them, and somebody's got to Uh, make some machinery or perhaps we could snap our fingers so to speak as the resurrected Lord did at the seaside as he called his disciples to eat he appeared at the seaside after his resurrection and and he had already a charcoal fire and fish in, in some sort of skillet and fresh bread, John 21 we may be able to do that The idea of fish and a skillet and fresh bread sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Peter illustrated the changes that will one day be commonplace. You remember he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. Perhaps we'll have that ability throughout the millennial kingdom as immortals and the coming new heaven and new earth. It doesn't mean that we'll have to walk on top or we can't sink or we can't swim, but our bodies will be able to do amazing things. In fact, when you think of that, a mocha doesn't sound all that difficult, does it? Another question was, will there be horses in heaven? Absolutely. In fact, we're told as we studied in Revelation 19 that we're going to come riding back with the Lord on white stallions. Wonderful. One of the kids asked, when people... When people die, is that what they look like in heaven? I certainly hope not. (laughs) I'm counting on some major improvements, right? Our glorified bodies will be perfected, recognizable. The Lord wasn't recognized because he he blinded, he shielded the eyes of, of individuals for his purposes at times. And he didn't have to be reintroduced to everyone, however. So we'll be recognizable, the basic distinctives of who we are will exist in our glorified body. But all of our joints are going to work without any pain and our bodies will be without any disabilities or hindrances, more than likely reverting back to the created stage of of a mature Adam and Eve, though young. Maybe as the Lord was in his glorified body in his early 30s, we're not told for sure. I, I was interested in one author who supposedly died went to heaven came back and wrote a book that ended up being a bestseller i, I skimmed through it at, at the airport uh, one afternoon and it bothered me that it had become so popular among other things that i found that were wrong it was interesting when he went to heaven that everybody was like he remembered them he said even his grandfather looked like his grandfather and i thought poor granddad How narcissistic. Everything revolved around me. One child asks, will we live in the new heaven or on the new earth? Both. In fact, we'll learn together as uh, we study the Father's house. When we study heaven, we'll be able to enjoy that house which will actually be on the newly constructed earth. There will be a new universe and a new earth to explore. And I know this is going to sound really strange to you, but you'll find that heaven is on earth, the Father's house. And we'll look at that together. Another child asks, why is the Bible called the Bible? Well, the word Bible is simply uh, the word biblion. We transliterate it into Bible. That means book. We add the word hagias or hagion in front of it, holy or sacred. And so we talk about the holy book or the holy Bible. Another child asks, how do we know the Bible is true? Excellent question. Well, we know it's true because the author of it, moving through the prophets and the apostles, according to Paul's writings in 2 Timothy 3, that this is God-breathed, and if this comes from God, God never tells a lie. He always tells the truth. Well, the tribulation happened... Before the rapture? You know the answer to that. After our study, we've noted the absence of the church during the tribulation. We've noted the purposes of the tribulation, which are not to purify the church. The church has already been purified without ever having to experience the wrath of God. We don't believe in some Protestantized version of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And yet I've talked to evangelicals who unknowingly support it as they defend the basic idea that the believer really ought to be purified through some kind of suffering before being allowed to enter heaven. Well, the Bible clearly delivers to us the truth that we are justified. We are purified. Now, completely through the blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. And, and we've been promised to be kept away, kept out of the coming wrath of God, Revelation chapter three ten, which will literally pummel the earth and mankind in judgment as God prepares primarily the nation Israel for their Messiah and displays his wrath as a final warning to unbelieving humanity. Last question, when is the rapture? The answer is, sooner than it's ever been, right? What amazing questions from third through fifth graders and how thrilled we can all be that even in our elementary ages and grades, answers to these questions are being provided from Scripture. Now, we've been studying our way through the millennial kingdom, and I had intended to go a little further on into chapter 20, but I've been getting a lot of feedback and a lot of questions as well related to our study. So what I thought we'd do is quickly review our timeline of future events and specifically answer some questions that have surfaced. So far, we've covered the rapture of the church as the church age ends and the tribulation period begins. Now, you might turn to 1 Thessalonians if you want to hold your finger there in Revelation, although I'm going to spend more time outside of it than inside of it. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 13, I got asked about this again this past week. Paul wrote, "We, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now the word sleep is a metaphor for death. The body looks like it's sleeping, doesn't it? But Paul made it clear that at death the body might lie motionless and still, as if it were sleeping, but the soul of that person is just as alive as ever. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? The Lord. The soul, spirit, that immaterial part of you that lives inside this body temporary shell. When the shell dies, as it were, goes to sleep, the soul emerges, is translated uh, to be with Christ for the believer. The unbeliever's soul goes immediately to Hades, where it awaits in that place of great torment, awaiting the final judgment. Luke chapter 16 gives you a, a look inside of Hades for your own study. The believer's soul, however, is immediately transported at death into the presence of the Lord. Now, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when the rapture of the believers takes place, those who are living, we're not going to go up before those who've died, as it were, in Christ. Their bodies are going to come out first. So Paul explains, look in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christ is going to give a command. It's probably the same command that he gave often when he interrupted every funeral he ever attended by saying, Rise. And that dead body came back to... To life. So Christ is going to command and the dead bodies of believers that have decayed and turned back to dust, depending on how long they've been in, in, in the grave, are going to come out of the graves, be reconstituted and rise to meet their soul in the air and to be with the Lord. Their bodies will be glorified, reconstituted, perfected and reinhabited by their souls which all along have been with Christ and it all takes place about that quick in an instant the twinkling of an eye Paul wrote to the Corinthians now Paul writes look at verse 17 then we who are alive that is we haven't died we know Christ we're not in the grave and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds ...to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And every time I read that and am preaching from the text... ...I have to ask, are you comforted by these words? Or are you convicted? Do you know Jesus Christ now? We, we have no idea when that rapture is going to occur... ...and the church age end. Are you concerned with this news or confident? I love the confidence of one of our staff members who shared her testimony at our last Christmas program. Depending on what night you came, you may have heard hers. I was struck by her decision and her husband's to have written on their tombstone this statement of faith. Here are the words they're going to have written on their tombstone. Quote, and they lived happily ever after. Isn't that great? That's true comfort. Why? Because they know that's not permanent. That's not a permanent place. Their souls already with Christ will be reunited with this reconstructed body that's called out first at the command of Christ, and they enjoy Christ then face to face in a reconstituted, glorified body. Now, there is an intermediate body, not a lot of scripture given uh, for us on that subject. But the body is able, as we're told in Luke 16, to experience pain, to long for a drink of water, to experience comfort. So we have some kind of intermediate body in the meantime, should we die before the rapture. So Paul describes then a physical resurrection of the bodies of New Testament believers as the rapture then whisks the bride of Christ away to be kept out of the wrath of God, the hour of great trouble which will be poured out on the planet during the tribulation. Now we've already studied the tribulation at length according to Daniel's prophecy. It's seven years long. The first three and a half years are relatively peaceful. Uh, a smaller, simpler version of the temple is is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people who've regathered will attempt to reconstruct their Old Testament system of of sacrifices it'll barely get off the ground when at the middle point of the tribulation the antichrist gains enough power and enough charisma with all kinds of false signs and wonders uh, much of it coming from the hand of his false uh, propaganda director the false prophet the false preacher and he will make the claim to be God incarnate he will place in the holy of holies, the holy place in the temple, an idol of himself, and he will demand worship as God. Revelation 13 gives all of those details. During the last three and a half years then, the great persecution of Israel begins. Because even unbelieving Israel won't do that. They'll refuse that. Many will be placing their faith in Christ as Messiah and Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ through hearing the gospel as the only true and living God, many of them will, will begin to be martyred in, in great numbers. And all the while, the Lord is pouring out these cataclysmic events of his wrath and one disaster after another. Most of the world will be like Pharaoh who knows it's from the hand of God, and they will refuse to repent. Their hearts are hardened. Revelation 16 and 17 talks about all the natural and cosmic upheavals that are coming from the hand of God, and eventually the armies of the world coalesce, and they march against the Messiah as they see the Messiah descending with us. Evidently, most believe that is a very slow descent, A longer warning, in fact. And yet the armies of the world will combine to march against him. They will believe that they can take him on and defeat him. Much like the battle at the the end of the millennium, which we studied, where the multitudes will march against Jerusalem. One word from Christ. Babylon will be crushed. These armies will be slaughtered. And the blood will flow as deep as the bridle of a a horse. Satan then is bound for a thousand years in a deep abyss, Revelation chapter 20. And that takes us about to where we are. The one thousand year reign of Christ on earth begins. Remember now the first time Christ appeared in the sky in 1 Thessalonians 4. He was coming for the believers. The second time Christ appears in the sky, in Revelation 19, at the end of the tribulation, he is appearing with the believers. I'm convinced the average Christian today thinks of his future in these terms. I'm saved. I've been called by God's grace out of darkness into a marvelous light. He has redeemed me. I'm either going to die or I'm going to be raptured and then heaven. That's what the average Christian thinks. I hope now you have in your minds, no, there's this 1,000-year amazing epic of of time when we will reign, this incredible time of joy and and, and glory and development on earth and economy and business and, and art and industry, and nature, and discovery, all waiting to play out on the stage of human history as the golden age begins. And we, the immortals, will co-reign with Christ in this kingdom. Now, as Christ comes to establish that kingdom, there is another physical resurrection. This is the physical bodily resurrection of Old Testament believers whose souls have been with our Lord as well as the physical bodily resurrection of believing tribulation martyrs who Revelation 20 clearly tells us will reign along with us. They're not left out of the kingdom. The Old Testament saints, the tribulation martyrs are going to be given glorified immortal bodies as they with us reign with, with Christ. And so we, immortals, reign over the mortals, both Jews and Gentiles, who believed the gospel at the end of the tribulation and who were allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. Those who didn't believe in Christ during the tribulation will be executed and they will await their final judgment in Hades. We, however, will enjoy this great period of time of joy and discovery. And those who enter the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies will have children, in fact, a thousand years of flourishing on planet Earth going to be absolutely amazing. Now, I had one woman come up to me, and she said to me, you know, this idea of ruling has no appeal to me at all. In fact, it has no appeal to my, my husband. In fact, my husband would rather be fly fishing for trout work rather than working in a governmental post. And I said, well, tell him that he might be the one in charge of the entire industry of fly fishing. He might be the person who tests out the newest equipment and decides who can fish when and where. The best seasons for fly fishing at the best places. He may very well get to enjoy fly fishing expeditions with Peter. He could teach Andrew how to do it. They only know how to use a net. They can share their fish stories, only they'll be telling the truth. We have no idea how how this... Rule, when you say rule, don't, don't think of, okay, i got a government job and I'm behind a desk. Everything that happens on the earth will be under the regency of you, the immortal, accountable to Christ. Everything. Everything. If the Lord returns, think of it this way, while our, while our nation still exists as it does, then in the kingdom, Chicago will still be Chicago. Carrie will still be Carrie. The mortals will experience life much like we do now. There will be traffic jams and, and school exams and, and shopping malls, unfortunately. Uh, there will be clothing designs. There will be business deals. There will be musical concerts, sporting events. One of you might be the future commissioner of baseball, Farmers are still going to plant crops, drive tractors, milk cows, ship produce around the globe, and build houses and roads and bridges and boats. Uh, The mortals over whom we rule and reign will be normal people. They're going to be just like you and me now. However, as we've learned, they're going to live a very long time. In fact, I had this question asked me. Where do mortals who enter the kingdom as believers go when they die during the millennial kingdom? Good question. There's not one verse or implication in the Bible that tells us any believer who enters from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom and those who are born who believe, not one verse that any believer ever dies throughout the entire kingdom. We are given the idea, certainly, as well as the prophetic scriptures that clarify it for us that conditions are going to revert back to the early days of creation and you're going to have people living like Adam and Methuselah and they're 930 years, 960 years. Their bodies are going to be remarkably improved even though they are mortal. They're going to be healed at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Anybody entering is a Will be instantly healed, according to isaiah 's prophecies they 're still going to have their sin nature they 're not going to be glorified, perfected in holiness, but they will be secure in Christ, having believed they 'll have to battle against sinful temptations, having believed in Christ during the tribulation, although they 're secure they 're going to have to develop the same disciplines uh, that we have to develop in our own lives. Now I will tell you that that the unbelievers if I can change quickly here. The unbelievers, we are told, will live long lives. However, Isaiah chapter 65 implies that unbelievers will experience death. That seems to be part of the judgment of Christ's reign. Those who believe live throughout the entire millennial kingdom and are glorified at the end of it. Those who do not believe eventually die. Conditions, however, will be much more encouraging for people to believe, won't they? Sin will be repressed as truth sits on the throne. Satan will be bound. His influence will be nullified. Christ will be physically visible on the throne. You don't have to introduce people to an invisible Lord, but a visible Lord. They can take a field trip to Jerusalem and see his glory. The Spirit of God will be globally unusually active. Among the nations of believers, according to Joel chapter 2, visions and prophecies will begin again and supplement the ministry of the gospel in that kingdom era like never before. That that work of the Spirit that was partially unveiled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 will now be open and and have center stage during the millennial kingdom with all kinds of signs and wonders according to Joel 2 and Ezekiel thirty. Six. And one other aid in encouraging men and women to obey and follow Christ and worship Him will be the newly constructed millennial temple. I've had some questions about that. Ezekiel's prophecies inform us that the glory of the Lord will fill the, the temple. It'll just glow. Ezekiel 43, verse 5. Everyone who comes to observe the enactment of the sacrificial system will leave in awe of the glory of God's grace and the sacrifice of Christ and the gospel. Worship is going to center on Jerusalem, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 3, Micah 5, Zechariah 8, and many more passages. The Levites will minister once again in the temple. Ezekiel 44 The Sabbaths and the feasts of Israel will once again be observed as a testimony to Jesus Christ who fulfilled them all. And now I've been asked this excellent question in recent days. Doesn't this violate these sacrifices? Doesn't this violate the finished work of Christ? Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ offered himself up one sacrifice for all time, verse 10, Verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So it's a very, very good question to ask. Does this violate it? Well, no, not at all. Hebrews 10 is defining for us the sufficiency of Christ's atonement once and for all in his full and final sacrifice. His sacrifice on the cross is necessary for salvation, and he alone is the path for forgiveness resurrection and the life, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. But you say, well, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, living Lord. I've come to the cross. I've confessed my sin. So that's all past tense for me and for all time. That's right. You have. You've come to the cross. You've believed in the atoning work of, of Christ. But, but remember, millions, perhaps billions of mortals Will need to as well. They haven't. They're going to hear the gospel of Christ sacrificed for them too throughout the millennial kingdom. According to Ezekiel 43, these temple sacrifices are not being performed for the sake of atonement, but as an illustration of Christ's atonement. God condescends to give us visual aids, doesn't He? Even today in the New Testament church, we have an illustration of Christ's atonement through the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, which we partake. Not because Christ needs to be sacrificed all over again. We're not sacrificing him again. That's why we don't participate in mass. Christ is not being sacrificed again. He was sacrificed once for all. These are memorials. This is an illustration of what he did for us in giving his body and his blood. And Jesus Christ said, he said, do this not to put me to death over and over again, but do this in what? Remembrance of me. Take this visual aid, which I in, in, in great wisdom am giving to you because you forget. Do this and so remember my sacrifice. We call that the ordinance of communion. We're, we're going to get into that big tank Full of water, it, it, it's heated. Nine times out of ten, if it's not, it's quick. It happens very quickly. People are going to get into there and they're going to illustrate what happened to them as they go under the water, that they, are, they have been buried with Christ in baptism and then we believe in the resurrection, fortunately, and everybody's illustrated and are, and are bringing them up, illustrating their identification with his resurrection. That's why we have an illustration of the the, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he displays through us as we're marked as his disciples. It doesn't save us. We're not saved in water. It illustrates the fact that we have been saved. So to reenact then in the temple here in the millennial temple, these sacrifices, they're wonderful illustrations. In fact, I can't wait to see it. And what that will do for us is we will weep with joy at the sacrifice of the unblemished lamb who gave himself for us. And those who don't know Christ, haven't placed their faith in him alone, will see this and be moved as well. It will be a wonderful aid to evangelism. It will be a wonderful incentive for worship and gratitude for the believer. Now there's one more physical resurrection I'll mention and then we're done. Uh, It's yet to happen in the timeline of human history. We're about there in our study of Revelation chapter 20. It'll be the physical resurrection of the bodies of every unbeliever who has died throughout all of human history. Their souls have been in Hades, some now for thousands of years, some perhaps only recently, having refused To believe the gospel in the millennial kingdom. Their bodies. Will be raised. And and they will be immortalized. Also reunited with their souls. Which have been languishing in Hades. Awaiting this terrifying moment of judgment. That's our next study. No God. Will be able to save them. As they stand before the great. White throne, John calls it in Revelation, the end of chapter 20. It will be the finale of God's judgment against unbelief. And the world will discover, as as they are swept into this awful scene, that, that no one will ever be able to get away from. That no matter how religious they were, if they've not been redeemed by Christ Their religion will not be able to help them. They will discover then that all roads do not lead to heaven any more than all interstates lead to New England. They're going to discover, just as you would know even now, you get on I-95 South, and you can say over and over again, I'm going to Massachusetts I'm going to Massachusetts. You can say that over and over and over. You can get a carload of people that believe you, and they're convinced, and you can chant as you go down the road, we're going to Massachusetts, we're going to Massachusetts. You can say that all the way as you run off the tip of Florida and drown in the Atlantic Ocean. Doesn't matter how sincere you are. You know what the difference is between Massachusetts and Miami? About 100 degrees, right? Right? My friends, this is going to be a terrifying moment when the world will recognize that Jesus indeed told the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will ever come to the Father except through me. Let me ask you, where are you in this timeline? Physically, we're in the church age. We're not in the Old Testament. We're not before the cross. We're after the cross, that historic, attested fact. We're now living in this period called the church age. The rapture could just be around the corner. The church age could go on, if God designs it, for another thousand years. But you know what? You won't. <laughs> and neither will I, Right? Will experience death. So the real question is where are you spiritually? Where are you in relation to that cross? which is making the difference in the church age, which will make a difference for you in the rapture, which will make a difference than where you're waiting as the tribulation takes place in heaven or in Hades. And, and the millennial kingdom, where will you be reigning with Christ or still waiting for the judgment? And, of course, the great white throne, will you be one of the judges? We're told by Paul, we will judge the world. Or will you be one of the judged? if you're not in the body of Christ through faith in him alone if the rapture were to occur you're not going to go up with him in the rapture you'll not come back down with him at the second coming you'll not be his co-regent in the millennial kingdom and you'll not enter the new heaven and the new earth there's a lot of things weighing on your answer where are you right now as it relates to the cross of Christ The questions that need to be answered today are not, even though they're intriguing, do we get to eat in heaven? Can people see their families from heaven? Are there horses in heaven? Are there computers in heaven? Why did Adam sin? What does sin have to do with natural disasters? Good questions. But here are more fundamentally important questions for you to consider today. The only questions you really must have an answer to Are you a member of the family of God? Have you been born again by faith in Christ? Is your faith genuinely rooted in the atonement of Christ alone? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. If you found your place on this timeline, not just physically, but spiritually, and you know you've come to Christ by faith, by His grace, the granting of his gift to you, you've exercised faith in him and you can say, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for death. If that comes first, or I'm ready for the rapture. I'm so thankful that I know now there's so much more ahead. It isn't just death, rapture, and heaven. It's death, rapture, and co-reigning with Christ. It's, it's the golden age and the glory of our Lord. And then the eternal state of heaven. I wonder if you're standing here today and you're troubled. You're not comforted. I'm so glad you've come. God designed for you to come and hear the gospel. And his spirit is calling you to leave the darkness of unbelief. And enter the light of faith in Christ. We're here so that you can know you're settled you're secure Father thank you for this assembly thank you for the privilege of being able to sing of our Lord reigning one day in a kingdom Lord we want your sovereign rule as believers in our hearts and lives even today so would you By your spirit, convict and challenge us as Christians. Maybe the news of evangelism explosion, fathers, touched the hearts of people, and they would have to admit they've never shared the gospel of Christ with anybody. I pray that many will sign up to be trained, to be helped in knowing how to share their faith with others. You've left us on the planet, not just to wait for the rapture. Certainly not just to bring you glory, but in bringing you glory, we deliver the gospel to our world and we deliver the invitation that whosoever will may come. That's your calling as ambassadors in our lives. And so I pray that many, even today, would say I'll be an ambassador. Thank you, Father, for the praise that we look forward to delivering with lips and lives in the future and cause us by obedience to be willing to praise you with our lips and our lives. Even today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.